0: Turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. As we continue through the psalm, we're learning from the psalmist about God's law. He has a delight in God's law, he treasures it, it's a source of comfort and assurance for him. And this morning, we'll see that the psalmist sees the goodness of God in relation to the law. And again, We'll see the separation, the distinction between the wicked who oppose God's law and God's people and the godly who love and obey God's law. We're going to look this morning at verses 65 to 72. Psalm 119, verses 65 to 72. And you can follow along as I read there, beginning in verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word, Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. All right, well, in verse 65, the psalmist writes, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. And here we see that the psalmist looks at what God has done in his life, and he says that God has dealt well with him. And it's according to his word, which means that God has kept his promises. He's done what he said he would do. We have a tendency to disbelieve God, to be suspicious that what he's doing is not really for our best. That doubt goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's what Satan suggested to Eve. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God is keeping something good from you. He knows this would be for your good, but he doesn't want you to have this blessing. And so Eve doubted God's goodness and mankind has followed suit ever since. The pride that Satan inspired in Eve was the cause of her discontent and pride will do the same thing to us. Now, the Bible teaches us that God is not actually hard to please. He doesn't have a difficult obstacle course of obedience and righteousness set up for us. Instead, he actually offers forgiveness and grace and mercy at no cost, freely. He gives us the the righteousness that we need as a gift, simply through faith in his son Jesus, the righteousness that he displayed on our behalf. And when God does send difficult circumstances into our lives. It's not because he's mean-spirited or vindictive. Paul explained to the Corinthian church that God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So the trials that God gives us are measured by what we can bear. They're not measured by his power Otherwise, they would just crush us. Or by the degree of our sinfulness, their limit is set by what God knows we can handle in His strength. And not only that, but God has promised to be with us in the trouble. Now, part of why we fail to see things the way that the psalmist does here is that we take things for granted. Those daily blessings of life that God gives us are things that we have just come to simply expect, and so we're not grateful. But if we would pause and take note of these blessings, we would see that God has dealt well with us according to his word. I grew up singing a hymn from the 1800s that is a simple song. It's not deep, but it expresses this truth. Here's what it says. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. It will surprise you because we're forgetful. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy you are called to bear? Count your many blessings. Every doubt will fly and you will be singing as the days go by. When you look at others with their lands and gold, think that Christ has promised you his wealth untold. Count your many blessings. Money cannot buy your reward in heaven nor your home on high. So amid the conflict... Whether great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. Count your many blessings. Angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journey's end. Spurgeon comments on this verse that we're looking at, that God has done all things well. The rule has no exception. And we should come to believe this and respond accordingly in gratefulness. Well, take a look at verse 66. In this verse, the psalmist says, "'Teach me good judgment and knowledge, "'for I believe in your commandments.'" Here, the psalmist expresses his confidence in the law word of God. I believe in your commandments. I have faith that your word is true. I know that your law is good. And at the same time, he recognizes a need in his own life. He needs to be taught God's law. He needs to learn good judgment. So what is good judgment? Thomas Manton gives us a description. He says, to have good judgment is to distinguish and judge rightly of things that differ. Things that, may not mis- that we may not mistake error for truth and evil for good. So that means learning to see things the way that God sees them, learning to value what God values, learning to call sin what God calls sin. It's learning to live and think according to God's standards. And the point is that good judgment leads to acting wisely. The Bible talks about knowledge and understanding and wisdom. Knowledge is learning the truth. Understanding is learning to make the connections between those truths, to see the, the reason and the consistency there, the, the, the Christian worldview that underlies it all. And wisdom then is putting that knowledge and that understanding into practice, acting on it, living it out. And good judgment should lead to acting wisely. Now, the problem is we don't naturally have good judgment. Paul explains that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And it's not just a matter of knowing. Paul also says that it involves submitting to that truth. In other words, it's a heart issue, not just a mind issue. He says in Romans 10, 3, 4, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So we need God to teach us. And Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit who guides us into truth. It also takes determination. We have to be intentional about it. Deuteronomy 11:16, 16, Moses told the people, "'Take care, lest your heart be deceived.'" Our hearts are deceitful. Jeremiah tells us that. So we need to be intentional about learning good judgment. So if you wanted to be intentional about learning good judgment, where would you go for training? What source would you look to? Well, it won't be any surprise when I say that the only place to go is God's law, God's word. That's the source for good judgment. Psalm 19, verse 7, tells us that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. See, that's the source for good judgment. God's law is what can make you wise. Colossians 3, 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. When you have the word of God in you, then you're able to have that wisdom to share with others. God's law is the standard of righteousness. It's the source of wisdom. If you want to have good judgment, immerse yourself in God's law. And good judgment won't come overnight. It's a life skill that has to be developed. And that takes time. You learn, sometimes by making mistakes. And you apply God's law, God's word, over and over in every situation. And over time, you learn how to see the different circumstances of your life the way that God does. Thomas Manton describes the process. He says, Long use and exercise does much increase judgment, especially as it is sanctified by the Spirit of God. Listen to how the Apostle Paul explains this. Well, I say Paul. In the book of Hebrews, the author to Hebrews, I should say it that way. He's been explaining to them how Jesus is a better high priest than any of the Old Testament high priests. And then he says this. He says, about this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So notice a couple of things here. First of all, the author of Hebrews says that the fact that they have trouble understanding his theology is because they are spiritually immature. They need training in the basic oracles of God. Oracles in general are simply just divine utterances, things that God says. But the Bible uses the word specifically often to refer to the law of God that was given at Mount Sinai. Paul, for example, in Romans three says that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So here the author of Hebrews is saying, That to grow in basic maturity, they need to understand the elementary principles of the law of God. And this is written to New Testament Christians. As the author is trying to help them understand what Jesus has accomplished. You need to be taught the basics of God's law, is what he's saying. And then notice that the evidence of being spiritually immature or childish is that they are unskilled in the word of righteousness. It's the law that reveals what God's righteousness looks like and they are unskilled in that law. So we're talking about good judgment. To have good judgment, you have to be skilled in God's law. That's what good judgment is. So then the author of Hebrews here says that the spiritually mature are those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil, powers of discernment, good judgment. And those powers are trained, it takes practice, it takes work. And that practice is constant. It's something that you're always doing in every area of life, learning to apply God's law, to see things the way that God does. And that enables you then to distinguish good from evil. How do we know what is good? Is it a, just a subjective sense that we have deep inside? Is it whatever the majority says? No, good and evil are defined for us by God's law. And we need to be training ourselves in that law if we ever want to be mature Christians who can handle the solid food of the Word. Now, what does the psalmist mean when he says, I believe in your commandments? Well, we have to believe the promises of God, but we also have to believe the law of God. If we accept God's promises but not his law, then we're really not believing God's covenant as he gave it to us. We're kind of actually making up one of our own. We have to believe that the commandments come from God. They are authoritative because he's God. So James writes that there is only one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and destroy And not only that, but we have to believe that God's law is good. God is good, and all that he does is good, and that means that the law that he's given is good. Paul writes in Romans chapter 7 that the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And so the psalmist says that he believes in God's commandments. Well, I've taken a lot of time on those first two verses this morning So, we're going to need to move a little more quickly through the rest of them. Verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So, this is giving us one more benefit of God's law. It brings a course correction in our lives. God uses his law to pull us up short when we wander astray and to bring us back to the right path. Charles Spurgeon says that often our trials act as a thorn hedge to keep us in the good pasture, but our prosperity is a gap through which we go astray. We don't like afflictions, but God uses them for our good. And the psalmist says that before he was afflicted, he went astray, but after the affliction, he now keeps God's word. I'd like to read you something this morning that Thomas Manton wrote in his commentary on this verse. And it struck me because of where our nation is at in relation to God's law and the difficulties and the problems that we're seeing around us now. Manton lived during a time of great upheaval in England. Uh, He was living through the 10 years of the English Civil War, which involved England and Scotland and Wales. And I want you to listen to what he writes in relation to Psalm 119, verse 67, and this idea of learning from affliction and how it relates to what's going on in the world around. Here's what he says. He says, let us consider these things that we may profit by all the chastenings of the Lord. It is now, in in his nation, it is now a time of affliction, both as to public judgments and as to the private condition of many of the people of God. We have long been straying from God, from our duty, from one another. It was high time for the Lord to take his rod in his hand and to scourge us home again. Upon these three nations, there is somewhat of God's three great judgments, war, pestilence, and famine. They are all dreadful. The pestilence is such a judgment as turns populous cities into deserts and solitudes in a short time, Then one cannot help another. Riches and honors profit nothing then, and friends and kinfolk stand afar off. Many die without any spiritual helps. In war, what destructions and slaughters, expense of blood and treasure. In famine, you feel yourselves to die without a disease. Know not where to have fuel to allay and feed the fire which nature has kindled in your bodies. But blessed be God, all these are in moderation. Pestilence does not ragingly spread. The war is at a distance. The famine only a scarcity. So he's saying of how bad the judgments of God could be getting, they're not there yet. We're in the middle of a civil war. We're, we're struggling. We've got problems going on, but it's not as bad as it could be yet. And then listen to what he says. Before God stirreth up all his wrath, He observes what we do with these beginnings. Besides, the people of God are involved in a heap of miseries on all hands. The oppressed, dejected party burdened with jealousies and ready to be hauled to prison and put under restraint. Holy men sometimes have personal afflictions added to the public calamities. Jeremiah was cast into the dungeon when the city was besieged. The chaff and grain both are threshed together, but the grain is, besides, ground in the mill and baked in the oven. Besides, who thinks of his strayings and returning with a more serious resolution to his duty? If we would profit by afflictions, we must avoid both the faulty extremes. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. Slighting and fainting must be avoided. What he's saying there is these afflictions that we're living in the middle of in his day, he's saying, God hasn't given us the full weight of his wrath yet. Yes, we're living in a time of difficulty, but God's watching to see how we'll respond to the beginnings of his judgment. And I would say, we're in a very similar place in our culture. We're starting to see those things. It's not getting, it's not nearly as bad as it could be. But God is watching to see how will we respond to the judgments that he brings. Verse 68. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. God is good. That's his nature. He's pure goodness. He's the fountain of goodness. All goodness flows from him. Like the sun's rays, beaming out from the sun, have all of their light and heat from the sun itself. All the goodness in the world originates with God. So we read in scripture that the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. And since God's nature is good, everything he does is good. He acts always consistently with his nature. He is good and he does good. There's so many things that could be said about God's goodness. Honestly, we could take a year and just talk about God's goodness. But let me just this morning mention three things. First, notice that goodness is how God chooses to reveal himself. When Moses asked God to show him his glory, what did God do? Exodus 33 tells us God said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So what did that look like? When God made his goodness pass before Moses, well, the next chapter tells us, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So God's goodness is a term that describes His mercy and grace and patience and steadfast love and faithfulness and forgiveness and justice, that's all together God's goodness. And that's how he reveals himself to us. The second thing I'll mention is this. Manton points out that understanding God's goodness helps us to cure our natural legalism. We tend to mistrust God. We tend to think of him as a cosmic killjoy the frowning judge in the sky who's just looking for a reason to squash us. But when Moses asks to see God's glory, what is it that God wants Moses to know about him? It's his goodness. Understanding God's goodness helps us to think rightly about our heavenly father. And third, if God is good and he does good and he's the source of all goodness, then we can't understand what is good apart from God. We've talked about this in recent days in relation to the civil magistrate right how does he know what is good well he's got to know god's law but it's true in every other area of life too how do you know what is good god's law because remember god's law is the transcript of his character and his character is good so we have no business calling things good when they're not godly what is godly is good By what standard should we judge? By the goodness of God, and that's revealed in his law. For the sake of time, I'm going to move real quickly through these final four verses today. Verse 69, the insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. The insolent are the proud ones, the ones who stand opposed to God, and their opposition to God leads them to be opposed to God's people. Since the psalmist obeys God's law, there's really not much that the insolent have to work with if they want to bring him down. Uh, There's not a lot that they can legitimately complain about. So instead, what do they do? They create a smear campaign. They lie about him. They they seek to steer public opinion against him. And we, of course, see this all the time in our day. One tactic that the wicked use to bring down the righteous is by lying about them. But the psalmist says that he keeps God's precepts with his whole heart That's important. If his heart was divided, if he had divided loyalties, then he would be tempted to give in to the wicked. But since his whole heart is given to God and God's law, he's able to stand faithful. In verse 70, we read that their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. The psalmist describes the heart of the wicked, those who are proud and who oppose God and his people, their hearts are fat and insensitive. You know, the fat part of you doesn't have a lot of nerve endings. Uh, That's kind of the idea here. Greasy, fat, not feeling. But in contrast, the psalmist delights in God's law. That brings health. It brings a right sensitivity instead of the dullness that he's associating there with fat. Spurgeon writes, Our delights are a better test of our character than anything else. As a man's heart is So is the man. So with the psalmist, we want to have a heart that takes delight in God's law. Verse 71 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It's very similar to what we saw in verse 67. So let me just add a few thoughts here. First, we remember that we judge according to the present what's right in front of us because we don't know the future. But God sees and knows it all. It may be that the present affliction that you're experiencing is preparing you for something that God knows you will face in the future. And beyond this life, we know our present afflictions are preparing us for eternity. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And Manton comments here, he says, A discerning Christian puts more value upon holiness wrought by affliction than upon all his comforts. And the second thing here is affliction difficulties often enables us to understand God's law better. We see through new eyes, having gone through the experiences that shed new light on God's principles. Martin Luther said, I never knew the meaning of God's word until I came into affliction. I have always found it one of my best schoolmasters. And third, we need to remember to measure what is good in relation to God. We tend to measure what's good in relation to our desires. If it leads to us getting what we want, then it's good. So we don't usually evaluate affliction as a good thing, but we should be measuring what's good in relation to God, the source of goodness. And affliction is good when God's using it to make us more like him. In verse 72, we read, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Spurgeon notes the language that the psalmist uses here when he talks about the law of your mouth. And he says, The same lips which spoke us into existence have spoken the law by which we are to govern that existence. That's why it's so valuable. That's why we should treasure it. What is it that you value? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In the end, Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Demas abandoned Paul because he was in love with this present world. Eventually, what you value most will determine the course of your life. And the psalmist says that God's law is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Is God's law better to you This is not just saying, yes, objectively, I agree that God's law is better. Most of us would probably agree to that. In general, yes, God's law is better. But is it better to you? This is a very personal statement of the psalmist. And one that should cause each of us to look inward and answer that question for ourselves. Well, for our case law this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Genesis 17. So turn in your Bible to Genesis 17. I'm going to have you turn several places this morning. This is the beginning of the law concerning circumcision. And I'm really not going to go into detail about the symbolism here because we don't have the time this morning and it's kind of a complicated and confusing one anyway. But I do want you to at least see the commandment of God and the associations that are connected with it. So we'll look at a couple of passages. Here's what we read in Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Okay, so the context here is the making of the covenant. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, So that's the, that's the content of the covenant that God is giving with Abraham. Now, verse nine. And God said to Abraham, "'As for you, you shall keep my covenant, "'you and your offspring after you "'throughout their generations. "'This is my covenant, which you shall keep "'between me and you and your offspring after you. "'Every male among you shall be circumcised. uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So this is the beginning of circumcision. It's clearly ceremonial or symbolic, and it's associated with the covenant that God made with Abraham. The covenant said God would bless all nations of the world through Abraham and his descendants. So his descendants were to be circumcised in association with this covenant. Now, With that in mind, turn over to Joshua chapter 5. While you're turning there, I'm going to show you one more passage, this time from Deuteronomy 10. You're turning to Joshua 5. I'm going to share with you something from Deuteronomy 10. So just try to listen while you're turning to Joshua 5. If you remember what the book of Deuteronomy is, it's the second giving of the law. That's what the name actually means. Moses is repeating the law for the people before he passes off the scene. And in chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, Moses is recounting, the, he's giving the Ten Commandments again on the stone tablets for the second time. He's kind of retelling the story, that, you know, the putting, the, the ark in the coven, putting them in the Ark of the Covenant. And when you get down to verse 12 in Deuteronomy 10, you read this. So you're, you're just holding your place in Joshua 5. I'm going to read to you. You can look up here and see Deuteronomy 10, Okay. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. That's referring to what we read to Abraham. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So here again, we have the covenant, God's choice of Israel to carry out his purposes. And we have the response of obedience that God expects fearing him, walking in his ways, loving him, serving him. And what does Moses call that? He calls it the circumcision of the heart. So before Moses even leaves the scene, we already see that physical circumcision is a picture of a spiritual reality. It's ceremonial. It's symbolic. You can read another passage that does essentially the same thing if, you, if you're interested in Deuteronomy 30. Okay, now... You're in Joshua 5. Okay, this is just after the Israelites have come into the land of Canaan. So the unbelieving wilderness generation has died off. And the younger generation that was born in the wilderness now obediently enters the land. We'll pick it up in verse 2. Joshua 5 verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeoth Ha'araloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness, Until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt perished, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Okay, so in other words, the wilderness generation, the the disobedient generation, had not circumcised their children. Now, verse 8, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed, and the Lord said to Joshua, today, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, and so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. So, for whatever reason, being uncircumcised was associated with the reproach of the Egyptians, Being circumcised was associating with God and the covenant that he made with Abraham. Verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Okay, so here we see the Passover being celebrated in conjunction with circumcision of the nation. These are the two core ceremonial identity markers for Israel. It's an entrance marker and a fellowship meal. Circumcision marks entrance into the covenant community, The Passover meal commemorates how God formed them into a nation by redeeming them from Egypt. And of course, these markers of the old covenant have corresponding markers in the new covenant. Baptism is the entrance marker into the people of God. And the Lord's supper is the fellowship meal of the covenant community. In the old covenant, God was working with an ethnic nation, Israel. In the new covenant, it's a faith people, the church. So the basic gist of the law that I want you to notice this morning is simply the command to circumcise your children as a marker of the covenant. Okay, that's, if you don't remember anything else that we just walked through, remember that. The command to circumcise your children as a marker of the covenant. Now, the principle that I want you to see about the law today is this, God's law is consistent with the New Testament teaching on salvation. God's law is consistent with the New Testament teaching on salvation. Last place I'm going to have you turn this morning, turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. This is still in the early days of the church here, in Acts 15. The Christian community began in Jerusalem, and it spread out through Judea and Samaria, and then on to the rest of the earth, to the Gentile lands. And over time... As churches sprang up in all those places, suddenly the church had to figure something out. They had to figure out, how do we form a unified community made up of both Jews and Gentiles? Because God's brought Jews and Gentiles together now in the church, but we're very different. How do you function together? when the Jews want the community to follow all of these ceremonies that they've had for hundreds of years. I mean, after all, Jesus' coming was the fulfillment of God working with their nation and all of these ceremonies. But the Gentiles are completely unfamiliar with them, and they don't see the need for them. They have faith in Christ. Why would they go back in time to something Israel did before Christ? Now that Christ has come... What parts of the Old Covenant have passed away and which parts transfer over to the New Covenant? And what happens is that some people start teaching that certain Jewish customs are necessary if you are truly a follower of Jesus, if you are truly part of the church. So a church council gets convened in Jerusalem to try to answer this question. So jump in with me at verse 1 here in Acts 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, that verse is very important. sets the context for the whole discussion. The question is whether or not circumcision is necessary for salvation. It's law in the Old Testament. What do we do with it now in the New Testament? Verse 2. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So there are Pharisees who have become believers, genuine believers, but they're still Pharisees. And remember what Jesus said, the tendency of the Pharisees is they lay heavy burdens on people that they can't bear. Verse six, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So Peter says, there should be no distinction between Jew and Gentile in the church. He says salvation is by grace for both Jews and Gentiles. And if salvation is by grace, then it doesn't come by means of the works of the law. He asks the question, since we Jews have never been able to achieve salvation by law-keeping, why would we think the Gentiles would be saved by keeping the law? Verse 12, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. So James says that the church is the answer to the prophecy that God would rebuild the tent of David. Like Paul teaches, the church is now Israel. Jew and Gentile, this is all Israel, the new Israel. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles. James continues, verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So James agrees that salvation is not by law-keeping. So why does he keep these few rules in place? He asks the Gentiles, to follow a few simple principles that will encourage harmony in the church. And it's really just a temporary thing for this transitional time period before AD 70 and as the church is kind of melding together. These are things that will go a long way toward being considerate to the Jews who have grown up with these rules and yet it won't place a heavy burden on the Gentiles. So verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do, where? Do you, you will do well. Farewell. So these rules are given for the purpose of improving the social relations in the church between Jew and Gentile. Okay, so if you think through the list there, if you look at verse 29, abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood. So later on, we see this in, in the church in Corinth. What about meat? that was sacrificed uh, and then it's leftover meat and so it's sold to the guys in the market and then in the market, they sell it to the, the people. Can we really not eat that meat? Has offering it to an idol actually done something to the meat? And the answer is no, there's nothing wrong with that. The meat itself is fine. And so this is kind of a transitional period thing like abstain from that just so that we're not offending the conscience of your Jewish brothers. And from what has been strangled, same idea. And then it says from sexual immorality, which would be really confusing because you you go, well, that's always wrong, right? The confusion stems from the word that's being used here. So let me explain it a little bit. The word here is the word that's often translated as fornication. But the word is, is actually more broad than what we tend to think of. It can refer in scripture to a number of different things, including provoking the Lord through mistrust or murmuring. It can refer to an arrogant way of life, apostasy, idolatry, witchcraft, heretical teaching, defilement, other moral impurity. The word is kind of a catch-all that refers to all of those things. And that's the sense in which it's being used here. Of course, the Jerusalem Council is not condoning sexual immorality. They're just saying, avoid all of these things that have um, these, these kinds of connotations to them. Second, the council is purposeful to counteract the idea that circumcision is necessary for salvation. Of the things that they require, circumcision is not one of them. So this is like the most central Jewish identity marker, and it's left behind by the council they refuse to say that it's necessary. So this ruling upholds the important teaching that justification is by grace through faith, not by means of the law. And if we understand the Old Testament law rightly and what the purposes of those ceremonial things were, then we won't get confused and we'll realize the New Testament teaching on salvation Is consistent with the Old Testament law rightly understood. Third thing, limiting the rules to these few things demonstrates that the vast majority of the ceremonial law is no longer required. It's still useful in that it pointed to Christ, it still serves to help us understand what he accomplished, but it's no longer required. It was always intended to be temporary. If we make it permanent, then we're violating the intent of the law. In fact, making it permanent would be undermining the law. It would be going against that very intent that was in the law all along. Fourth, finally, Since at least some of these rules are not things that would normally be morally binding, we see that this was just a temporary solution in the early days of the church. It was to help the Jewish and Gentile parts of the church come together in unity. But when that transitional time came to an end, even these rules are no longer necessary. Probably most of the things that would have fit into the fornication category would still be ruled out on the grounds of the moral law rather than the ceremonial. But none of the ceremonial law remains in principle. So our principle this morning about the law is that God's law is consistent with the New Testament teaching on salvation. The Jerusalem Council upholds the idea of justification by grace through faith. They require only a very few things for the ceremonial law to continue but notice that it's consistent with God's law. The moral law and the civil case laws that illustrate it still apply today. The moral law applies in all of its principles. The case law applies as illustrations, helps for us on how to apply that moral law. And while the details of those cases may not correspond to our situations today directly. The cases are still valid because they give us the information we need to apply it to our situation today. But the ceremonial law has passed away because that's what it was always intended to do. The Judaizers who are saying, you've got to be circumcised in order to be saved. And the Pharisees believed circumcision was necessary for salvation. But salvation is by grace, through faith, not law. And that's true today in the New Covenant era. It was true 3,000 years ago during the Old Covenant era. Salvation by grace through faith is consistent with God's law because God's law was always pointing us to that truth. And it still does today. We can't be saved by law keeping because we're all law breakers. But Jesus kept the law perfectly as our representative. He died in our place, taking a death he did not deserve on our behalf. And the righteousness that that he has, he has given to us. If we have faith in Jesus, if we trust him and what he's done for us, for our salvation, then we're dressed in his righteousness. God looks at us and sees us As dressed in the righteousness of Christ. It's salvation by grace through faith, not law. God's law gives us the standard, shows us that we fall short. It displays God's righteousness, but if we have faith in Jesus, then the law takes on a new meaning. It teaches us how to live, not how to earn God's favor. Jesus has already done that for us, but how to live in response to the grace that God has shown to us. In Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful this morning for your law and for what it teaches us. We're thankful that salvation is by grace, through faith, not by keeping the law. We're thankful that you have granted us salvation in Christ that Jesus has taken our place, that he's taken our sin penalty, that he gives us his righteousness so that we can stand in your presence. Not in our own righteousness, but dressed in the righteousness of Christ. May we live our lives in accord with your law, not because we're trying to earn your favor, but simply as a living thank you to what you have done for us.